I'm Catherine Arndt, the Chief of the VLGA Connect Studio. Welcome to today's episode, brought to you by the VLGA, your councillor support network and the national broadcaster on all things local government. Hi everyone, welcome to VLGA Connect and I'm delighted to have joining me on the program today, Jonathan Spear, the CEO of Infrastructure Victoria. Jonathan, you've been on a few times, I reckon if we did a list, maybe you'd be just almost to the top of regular guests. Welcome back. Oh, thanks very much, Chris. I'm happy to be a regular guest. Always happy to chat with you uh, about all the things Infrastructure Victoria does, which has yeah lots of relevance to, to VLGA members. Absolutely, it does, and the local government sector more broadly. And there's always something coming out of your office that's worthy of talking about. And what we wanted to touch on today was the recent Home Choices report, which was, as I understand it, the result of about 18 months of research work. That's right, Chris. Yeah, this is a really large piece of Australia-leading research. No one's done work quite like this before, and certainly nothing um, that is as recent and specific to our Victorian context. So the, the research is called Our Home Choices, and it is about how um, people's choices about where they live makes a big difference to the infrastructure needs that we have and how we meet those, and also the important ability to unlock choice for where people live. Right. And that's a really big issue in Victoria currently. So we chose to do some dedicated work, really diving into you know, what was the underpinning evidence and the policy options to address this connection between home choice and, and infrastructure delivery. Jonathan, we keep hearing about a housing crisis, not just in Victoria, but right across, right across the world, actually. Was this piece of work a response to that or something that just happens to be happening at the same time that we hear so much about housing affordability and housing shortages? Well, it's really relevant to housing affordability and and choices, but what I want to emphasise, suppose, is that there's lots of components to the challenges we've got in housing in Victoria and indeed across Australia. And some of those sit in at federal government level and some at state and local government level. Mm. We have taken a slice of the challenge and we think it's a really important slice. And it's the choices that people make to live in greenfield development areas. So those new growth areas on the edges of Melbourne, Geelong and Ballarat, which have been booming over the last decade or so. And uh, that's a component of the housing affordability challenge. And the reason we chose to look at that and not say social housing or renting or all that sort of thing is not that those aren't important. They are, and we've had other things to say, uh, especially about social housing in the part we think of that as, as infrastructure. But we specifically focused on home buyers who have been choosing to live in the greenfield suburbs for a couple of reasons. Firstly, Plan Melbourne has an aspiration for around 70% of additional growth to occur in the established areas of Melbourne. And that's not happening. Uh, We are at around 50%. Uh, and or a little lower. And similarly, there's targets for Geelong and Ballarat, which we are also not being met. And the consequence of that is, from an infrastructure perspective, our research from the past shows that it costs between two and four times more to deliver the infrastructure that our new household needs 
you know, growth area, a greenfield area, compared to scaling up the infrastructure you need in an established area of Melbourne, that kind of incremental change. So it's core to the infrastructure challenge that state and local governments have to meet the needs of our growing communities. And beyond the cost, there's the lifestyles that people lead. Um, if, you know, some people, our hypothesis was, uh, perhaps would choose to live in established areas but aren't getting that choice. And that's what we sought to then test mm. out and get really good evidence of. And some of the results were surprising and they were certainly really informative. Tell us about the ones that surprised you. Yeah, so we our methodology of doing the research was that we didn't want to go in thinking, Oh, greenfield development, bad, established area, good. We had a really open mind to this. And so we talked to people who were living in these places. So first we talked to around 22 focus groups of people living in diverse greenfield development areas and some established areas about why did they choose there and, and what are they like and not like so much about that. Then we did a really large survey of over 6,000 people. Mm which were really representative of the population of Geelong and Ballarat and Bendigo. And what they told us is that um, they start out with, um, if you like, an ideal home in their minds. And it's probably not surprising. It's a three or four bedroom home and a, an established house, uh, you know, a freestanding house with parking and so forth. And then they trade off from there. Uh, against location yeah. or, and against price and the features of the home. And what was surprising uh, is a couple of things. Firstly, um, actually um, around 68% from memory of people would still choose a greenfield area, right? So mm. the, the demand for people to live in those growth areas is still strong and these people know the decisions they're making. So it's, it's very important not to be patronising. Yeah. Um, you know, lots of people are making a very deliberate choice and they they, they want the features of the home, the, that freestanding larger home, and they're willing to trade that away. But the other interesting thing was around one in five households told us, now, actually, we would like to live in uh, closer to the centre of Geelong or Ballarat or Melbourne, but we're just not being given the choice. We yeah. cannot afford it. So middle income earners, which are the sorts of people generally who are buying on the edges of our cities, are being locked out of middle Melbourne. And that's basically because of cost? Cost, but also is because of just supply of high quality, medium density houses, like townhouses and low rise apartments, which are the sorts of uh, properties that middle-income uh, home buyers might choose to live in instead, um, they're not being delivered. Mm. So that was a re that really came through starkly when our economists dug into um, years worth of property price data to look at what and what could people afford in different places, and it was. Um, we knew that there was affordability challenges, but it was very stark about how locked out middle-income earners are. So if we go back to the start, about a 70% aspiration for uh, uh, from Plan of Melbourne of yeah. people living in established areas, or if we look at trying to make the best use of our infrastructure, what was really strongly surprising to us is just how 
locked out people are from even taking that choice. But so that there's going to remain really strong demand for greenfield housing, and that's okay, right? If we can do a bit of both, then that makes the task of, of delivering infrastructure for state and local government easier overall and actually unlocks choices that people don't currently have. Jonathan, in your research with people who've made decisions to buy in greenfields areas and knowing that the infrastructure generally doesn't keep pace with the growth that's happening in those outer areas in particular, do you get a sense that people are fully aware that that's going to be the case and whether there's any buyer's remorse once they're in there and they realise the public transport and the road network, et cetera, perhaps isn't to their expectations? Yeah, it's a really important question, Chris, and that's the question we actually ask people. Uh, We asked it both in the focus groups uh, and in the, and in the uh, surveys, and also we looked at the economic events, the relationship between house prices and where infrastructure is located. Generally, people get it. So generally, they understand that they're paying a lower price. There's a getting a ho- the home with all the features that they want, the bigger home, a larger home, and they understand that uh, for a new areas that are growing there's some delay involved and that's going to involve some travel and the expectation is that over time the infrastructure will catch up where people express some frustration to us obviously is where uh, stated plans either the developers talk about or that are in council or state government plans then don't get delivered after some years and they express some frustration but it's varied according to the location so let's not be um you know, patronising about this, people get it and they're deliberately making a trade-off. Um, they're not silly, they understand and they're, and, they're, and they're very calculated about this in a, in a sensible way. Mm. It's backed up by the economic evidence. So we looked at the relationship between house prices and provision of infrastructure nearby like public transport or uh, schools and hospitals where there is a relationship that's positive if, if house prices, uh, when those ha- prices, when those homes are located near infrastructure, and of course, is the converse where there is a lower amount of infrastructure being provided. It's really important, though, part of the challenge, right? Because of course, there's challenges that in terms of the scale of growth and state and local government being able to meet people's expectations. And when we turn to some of the policy solutions that we've identified, a key element was um, very widespread dissatisfaction with the state of infrastructure contribution schemes currently. Uh, and that that is a key policy option available to government to really start to send the right price signals in both growth and established areas of our cities so that that's being factored into. So there's resources available and we're not cross-subsidising one form of development over another. I want to get to in a moment uh, what proposals or recommendations have come out of this just briefly, but I'm mindful that 18 months ago we were in the middle of a pandemic and I wonder, with that as an overlay, how uh, influential to the way people responded or made decisions, particularly to, to, to buy in regional areas, how much of a factor was the pandemic? And do you think you'd have a different answer to some of those questions if you'd have start your research now? Yeah, it's interesting, Chris. We uh, talked to people around the middle of last year. So they'd been through the pandemic, but, but we were all emerging from it as well. And it wasn't a huge factor 
in people's decision making around where they live. There's probably uh, two things that are born out that are COVID related. One is generally people who may have been edging towards having a slightly larger home with an extra bedroom that could serve as a study. The experience of COVID and working from home probably pushes them more in that direction. Mm. Um, they were probably inclined already that way to have a larger home and be willing to live a bit further out. And then other modelling that we have done in a different research project, looking at the effects of working from home where people live and work, shows that people are generally willing to live a little bit further away from the centre of Melbourne and Geelong and Ballarat, where they are able to work from home between one and three days a week. Hmm. That's a trade they're willing to make. To, and so, so those are the effects, but there wasn't an overwhelming impact um, and it didn't come through as a driving force of people's choice, in part because there's much bigger forces at play in people's decision-making, things around what type of home do you want, um, what's available, um, how much do you prioritise location being proximate to the centre of the city or where family and friends are at live versus the characteristics of the house. Those are the really big ones that come through. That, that's interesting. Now, you've made, I think, 10 uh, recommendations or proposed 10 policy options. We won't have time to go through them all. But in general, what are you saying to the state government as a result of this research? We're saying there's, there's three main areas where there is opportunity to change policy in a way that will um, unlock choice for people uh, to live in established areas of Melbourne, Geelong and Ballarat and therefore um, make the best use of the infrastructure we've got and also dial back some of the pressure on infrastructure delivery in those growing areas of the cities to make that easier as well. So one, there's some um, in disincentives for people around prices and subsidies, and I might talk about that quickly because government can control that. Mm. Second thing is the actual diversity of the homes that we deliver. And, and then the other one is just delivery, actually streamlining the delivery of more high quality, medium density homes in the established areas of our cities. Yeah. On, the price, on the price factors, hmm. um, so I've already talked about uh, infrastructure contributions and that there being really big opportunity to reform those. And that um, then would affect relative prices in both established areas and growth areas. The other couple of things is that stamp duty really distorts people's choices and tends to make them buy bigger homes earlier than they need to and then not and then not move when people have set into place. And there's lots of reasons to reform stamp duty, but giving people greater home choice and making better use of infrastructure is one of them. The other is we were surprised to find that the first home buyers grant doesn't actually improve the affordability of homes because um, the cost of that is pretty much factored into prices developers charge already. So we think that, but but what it does do is encourage people to buy in greenfield areas because they're really the only areas that qualify from a price perspective for first home buyers grant. So we think that there's other ways Victorian government can support home buyers, particularly using the Victorian Home Buyer Fund, which is a shared equity investment. Then um, when we turn to uh, 
building more homes in established areas where there's good access to uh, existing infrastructure, especially transport infrastructure. There's some recommendations that I think are particularly relevant to local governments and the role that the state and local government have. So we have recommended that the state government uh, set targets for the type and number and size of new homes in each local government area and that they do that in collaboration with local governments and that local governments be offered incentives, in particular incentives like planning assistance and infrastructure delivery assistance, to actually then progress the, the achievement of those targets, which need to be monitored uh, on an annual basis. So we've got to sense the progress we're making. So set targets and then then measure progress to meet mm. them, um, which we just currently don't have at the moment. Mm. Um, the, the second one is prioritising and streamlining approvals for urban renewal precincts where there's, you know, where there's big opportunity to deliver greater diversity of housing more quickly. And the third one is around low-rise apartments that are well located near transport connections. We think that there could be much greater use of the existing residential growth zone that is designed to facilitate the delivery of low-rise apartments. But there is a genuine concern around quality of apartments. Right. So we think that there should be better standards issued for low-rise apartments, so up to sort of four storeys, um, and that that could be in the planning provisions. Uh, once there's that assurance about the better standards, then there should be more areas that are rezoned to residential growth zone to deliver those higher quality low-rise apartments that we know is some of the demand that, that sort of one in five households would rather have in, instead of a greenfield area home. There are proposals for state government. Um, what we've um, emphasised is that there's real opportunity to collaborate with local governments, right. yeah. particularly in the identification of the areas in each local government area that are most appropriate for uh, greater high quality um, low-rise apartments and townhouses. Hmm. We're not talking about high-rise towers willy-nilly throughout the suburbs. We're talking about being, um, you know, very deliberate about where this uh, development occurs. And to be frank, we're also talking about um, facing up to uh, existing residents who may not want to see change in their areas by giving a voice to people who don't actually live in those areas yet. Yeah. Giving a voice to our children who would like to live in those areas but will not be able to if we don't make change. Yeah. Giving a voice to our parents who, when they want to downsize, would like to have somewhere that they can live that isn't on the edge of the city. So that's some of the big things that are at stake here. Why collaboration between state and local government in making this happen is so important. And if we don't do it, the cost is going to be billions of dollars more in infrastructure that we deliver on the edges of our cities instead of making use of the infrastructure that we have and incrementally improving it in established areas of our cities and locking uh, you know, around a million people a year who are coming to Melbourne mm. out of the choices that they would like to make. 
Mm. And some people still choose greenfield areas, and that's fine. And we need to continue to have a focus on delivering there. But this is a really big opportunity that requires collaboration and, in some cases, a change of mindset about the opportunity that there is here to have really great, thriving cities. Very logical and makes uh, perfect sense. It's been out for a little while, Jonathan. Has there been any sort of reaction or response from state or local government, for that matter, to these proposals? Yeah, so it's been really well received by lots of stakeholders. So state government is thinking it through in terms of the review that is currently happening to plan Melbourne and other planning settings. And the planning minister has certainly... Uh, reflected positively on the evidence that we've been able to bring to the discussion and the nature of this challenge around giving people choice and that continuing with the way we have been for the previous decades is not necessarily the formula for a thriving city in the future. Mm. We've had really good engagement with local governments as well. And pleasingly, uh, across lots of um, in peak industry stakeholders, you know, they have shown interest in this. And it's a challenge that we face in Victoria, you know, especially in Melbourne and Geelong and Ballarat. But actually, it's a challenge that we're even seeing play out uh, in other cities around Australia where this um, need for uh, giving people more choice in where they live and making the best use of the infrastructure available is one that actually is playing out across the country. Well, as you say, largest of its kind in Australia, this research project, and uh, let's hope it leads to uh, some improved outcomes. And uh, what's next for you? What's the next big project we might be talking to you about? Well, we uh, have just uh, kicked off a month or two ago the process for updating our 30-year infrastructure strategy that we always want to hear lots from local governments about. Mm-hmm. Consultations actually open on that uh, on the Engage Victoria website. So we're doing work on that at the moment. And that's something that will roll out over the next couple of years. So there'll be multiple opportunities for communities and local governments to tell us what matters to them around infrastructure and what the key priorities are when we deliver the next 30-year infrastructure strategy update, which will be in 2025. The other thing we're working on is how to make the best use of buses across Melbourne. We think that's a really big opportunity. And so I'd love to come back and have, maybe have a chat with you about that too, Chris, uh, when, when that's really later in the year. We'll look forward to that. That's always a hot topic, isn't it? Okay, so our home choices, how more housing options can make better use of Victoria's existing infrastructure. We've been talking about that today. We'll pop a link to the report in the show notes for those who'd like to dig a bit deeper. Jonathan, always great to talk to you. And thanks so much for your time today on VLGA Connect. Pleasure. Great to speak with you. And um, yeah, if um, anyone is um, interested in talking further with us uh, after they've had a look at the work, please feel free to be in touch. At VLGA Connect, thanks for joining us and stay tuned for more coming at you very soon. Bye for now.